So we just finished a, about eight weeks going through the Lord's Prayer. What we did is we kind of went through the, the context of the Lord's Prayer again, uh, we, and then we went through each of the different petitions of the Lord's Prayer. This week, we're transitioning into a, a new sermon series, and the sermon series we're doing uh, beginning this week is called Truth and Art, Truth and Art. And we've done this now multiple times throughout the course of um, our time here at Seven Hills Fellowship, but the question that we um, end up talking about here, and this again falls under the category of general and special revelation, we believe that the general revelation of the heavens declaring God's handiwork and pointing us to God, that that same uh, thing happens in art, that art points us ultimately to God. The question is, how do we as Christians engage with art? And maybe a better question is, historically, how have Christians engaged with art? And one of the ways that we've engaged with art, and by art I mean literature, and I mean movies, and I mean music, and I mean visual arts, all those different kinds of arts, how do we engage with art? And one of the ways that Christians have engaged with art over the years is they've avoided it altogether. And so they've taken really an ascetic view towards art. Maybe sometimes what they've done is they've created a, a particular Christian subculture of the arts to sort of get the, out of the way of sort of the secular arts. And so one of the ways we've handled art over the years is we've avoided it entirely. A second way that Christians have engaged with the arts is they've embraced the arts uncritically. In other words, they've embraced the arts and just sort of taken everything in. And I'm afraid that that's actually more and more the way that I see Christians in this day and age responding to art. The problem with that is that art is actually philosophy, right? It's actually philosophy that's, that's wrapped up in beauty. And therefore, what happens is when we partake of that art critically or uncritically, that it becomes part of our thinking, it becomes part of our feeling, and part of our feeling without us even realizing it. It's always discipling us. So we either avoid it or we embrace it uncritically, or what I'm going to argue in this series is that we should embrace art critically and biblically. We should embrace all of life critically and biblically, actually. In regard to art, we should realize that whether consciously or unconsciously, art is always preaching to our hearts. Every Netflix show you watch, every song you listen to, every beautiful painting that you see, it's preaching a message to your heart. It's often and usually circumventing our heads, and so it makes its way down into our hearts long before we even realize what it is. But that's exactly why 1 Corinthians 10.5 says this, we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. That's what we as Christians are called to do. So over the years here at Seven Hills Fellowship, again, I mentioned that we've done any number of these different truth and art series over the years. We've looked at authors like Cormac McCarthy and Harper Lee, painters like Picasso and Frida Kahlo. We've covered movies like Mad Max Fury Road. You can go back and check that one out. We've looked at Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. If you haven't watched that, I recommend it. We've done music by the Rolling Stones and by Iron and Wine, and the core argument, again, behind each of these sermons in this series is that all art, whether it's visual, literary, or musical, whether it intends to or not, that all art is making particular truth and value claims about the world that we live in, right? We're surrounded by it, so we better understand how to deal with it. Even nihilistic art, like the symphonic works, works of John Cage, make the truth claim in his art, he makes the truth claim that all of life is random and it's without meaning. That's the message of his art. And not to be snarky or sarcastic, but again, that's actually still a truth claim. He's claiming something about reality. C.S. Lewis addresses this very idea of atheistic art or thinking in mere Christianity when he says the following. He says, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, 
We should never have found out that it has no meaning, just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. In the shock photography of Maplethorpe, the message is that meaning is found in union with another person. And through his art, though it became twisted and ugly, ultimately, the creation story of Adam and Eve in Genesis makes that same point about human connection. It's not good for man to be alone. The theme of Cormac McCarthy's The Road is Sacrificial Love. Uh, When he was interviewed, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie or read the book, he said, it's actually a love story for my son. And he says, again, that this theme is sacrificial love. And again, that's perhaps the central theme of all of Scripture. All those truth claims assume meaning. They assume truth. And I would argue that ultimately every truth claim points us back to God as the source of all meaning and all values and all truth. Today, again, we're beginning this Truth and Art series, and we're beginning with a book, not the movie, but a book called A River Runs Through It by Norman MacLean. Some of you guys are familiar with that, probably more familiar with uh, the movie than the book. The movie was nominated for four Academy Awards. The book was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in 1977. Uh, In order to set the stage just a little bit, let me me sort of put the plot out there for a second. It, It primarily, the book, focuses on two brothers. Norman is the older brother, and he's more responsible, and Paul is the younger brother. He's a little bit wilder. And what's interesting is they're the sons of a Presbyterian minister living in Montana who loves both fishing and the church. In fact, the opening line of A River Runs Through It is this. In our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing, We lived at the junction of great trout rivers in western Montana, and our father was a Presbyterian minister and a fly fisherman who tied his own flies and taught others. He told us about Christ's disciples being fishermen, and we were left to assume, as my brother and I did, that all first-class fishermen on the Sea of Galilee were fly fishermen, and that John, the favorite, was a dry fly fisherman. As the book progresses, it becomes clear that the younger brother, Paul, that his life is out of control, that it's chaos. He's drinking too much, he's gambling too much, and he keeps fighting, usually because of one of those two prior issues in the streets. And in the end of the story, some of you know this, um, his recklessness cost him his life, and Norman, the older brother, and his father, the Presbyterian minister, are left to try to make sense of Paul's life in light of his death, sort of the idea Before we jump in and see how this story points us to Scripture and ultimately to Christ, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for general revelation. I thank you that the heavens do indeed declare your glory. Father, I thank you that as we listen to music and art and that our hearts are touched, that we can know that the reason that tears well up in our eyes and that joy manifests itself in us is because we're touching on something that is true, something that is holy, something that you have written into the story of humanity. Father, I pray ultimately today that the general revelation that we experience would point us back to your word, to you as the author of all reality, and to your son Jesus, our Savior. It is in his name that we pray all these things today. Amen. So I'm going to begin with uh, a section of A River Runs Through It that, that points to something deeper. McLean writes this, I sat there and forgot and forgot until what remained was the river that went by and I who watched. Eventually, the watcher joined the river, and there was only one of us. I believe it was the river. 
Even the anatomy of a river was laid bare. Not far downstream was a dry channel where the river had run once. And part of the way to come to know a thing is through its death. Years ago, I had known the river when it flowed through this now dry channel. So I could enliven its stony remains with the waters of memory. In death, it had its pattern, and we can only hope for as much. Its overall pattern was the favorite serpentine curve of the artist. Internally, however, it was made of sharp angles. It ran seemingly straight for a while, turned abruptly, and then ran smooth again, then met another obstacle, again was turned sharply, and again ran smoothly. The Big Blackfoot is a new glacial river that runs and drops fast. The river is straight rapids until it strikes big rocks or big trees with roots. Then it swirls and deepens among big rocks and circles back through them where big fish live under the foam. As it slows, the sand and small rocks it picked up in the fast rapids above begin to settle out and are deposited, and the water becomes shallow and quiet. A River Runs Through It is one of those books that on one level is just excellent, even on a very shallow level. The writing is fantastic. It takes place in a beautiful location, and so if you're outdoorsy, you can kind of appreciate it. It's also about fishing, and so if you're uh, someone that likes fishing, you can resonate with it in certain ways. And finally, it touches on any number of different themes like family and even romance, but maybe more than anything, it focuses on brokenness and death. And so in other words, there's really something in it for just about everyone. But in order to truly appreciate this book, you have to understand the entire book, the fishing, the fighting, and especially the river are all metaphors for deeper truths, truths that I would argue are grounded in God and in His Word. So let's look very quickly and see what biblical truths emerge from this book. And again, there are lots of them. I'm really only going to focus on a couple. The first truth that comes out in A River Runs Through It is that life has meaning, that all life has meaning, that it has purpose. There's a scene in the book where Norman, again, the older brother, Paul, the younger brother, and their father have all gone fly fishing together on the big Blackfoot. Norm has caught a couple of trout and he's just content. So he makes his way downstream, and he finds his father sitting on the bank of the river after having caught a couple of fish of his own. And his father is sitting there looking out over the river. He's reading a book. Norm walks up, and he asks his father what he's reading, and his father responds this way. He says, a book, a good book. Then he told me in the part I was reading, it says, the word was in the beginning, and that's right. I used to think water was first, but if you listen carefully, you'll hear that the words are underneath the water. That's because you're a preacher first and then a fisherman, I told him. If you ask Paul, he'll tell you that the words are formed out of water. No, my father said, you're not listening carefully. The water runs over the words. Paul will tell you the same thing. It's important to recognize that the story, that in this story, this river, the river that runs through it, through the story, is a metaphor for each and every human life. In this passage, the issue is whether or not our human stories have meaning because God exists and has spoken, or whether or not we simply tell ourselves that our lives have meaning even if they don't. That's the discussion that's being had here on the bank of the river. Norman, this again older brother, embraces the latter point a view. This is maybe an existentialist worldview, maybe a postmodern worldview, arguing that the words are formed out of the water. In other words, 
He believes that we invent meaning in order to make sense of our lives. Does that make sense? You don't really love your children, right? You just, you just have to tell yourself that you do to, to make sense of the world, right? Uh, you don't really love beauty. It's just that you have to tell yourself to make sense of the world. Your life doesn't really have any meaning. You have to tell yourself that in order to make sense so that, world, so that your life isn't nihilistic ultimately. His father, and surprisingly his younger brother, believe the opposite. They believe that life has meaning precisely because God has spoken. This is what the father says. He says this, the water runs over the words. Paul will tell you the same thing. In other words, God has spoken long before we came into existence, and our stories come later. Our rivers run over the words that he has spoken. Our lives have meaning precisely because they flow over a world that God has spoken into existence. The backdrop for this conversation between a father and a son is John 1. That's the passage that the father is reading when Norman finds him sitting on the shore. In verses 1 through 4 of John 1, John writes the following words. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. John, this is John, the apostle that Jesus loved. He's an apostle who walked with Jesus for three years. And at the time of the writing of these words in John chapter 1, it's very likely that he's a white-haired pastor in Ephesus. But he makes the point, he makes it clear that the word that is Jesus existed long before our human stories began. John, in fact, argues that it's through the word that, to quote him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, right? Life. John even goes further to say that it's because of the word that we have both light and life. Verse 4 says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. In other words, John is saying it's precisely because God exists and has created the world through Jesus, the word, that we not only have physical life, but also light, the ability to see that our lives do indeed have meaning. You are not the product of chance. The light of Jesus shines in the darkness and reveals to us, to you and to me, exactly who God is, precisely who we are and who it is that we were created to be. All of this leads us to our next point. The next thing we see in this book, A River Runs Through It, is that one of the other points is this idea of restoration, restoration. Now, I'm gonna, there's a picture I'm going to put up on the screen here in a second, if you can see it. It's got four panels, and the four panels point to these different stages of restoration, and so the final panel there is the restoration panel. This one is creation. The second one is fall. You can see death, then redemption, then restoration. Let me explain this really quickly. In theology, the term restoration describes the work of the risen and reigning Christ and our partnership with him in that endeavor, okay? That's what restoration means. It's the work of Jesus reigning and ruling in heaven, and it's our partnership with him in that endeavor. Creation, the first panel, was God's original design for humanity, but Adam and Eve's fall led to disintegration. 
relational disintegration, spiritual disintegration, psychological disintegration, and perhaps most obviously and painfully experienced by us, physical disintegration. Jesus, in response to that fall, embarked on a rescue mission that we call redemption. That's the third panel. Jesus paid the ultimate price to buy back humanity and the human story from the jaws of sin and guilt and death. Restoration, that final panel, is the final act of Jesus to build back better, to steal a phrase from the White House, or to make humanity great again, if you want to go on the other side of the political aisle. Both of those ideas resonate with us because they point to something real. They point to restoration. And a river runs through it, and McLean hits upon the theme of restoration again and again and again, but he uses the metaphor of fly fishing to talk about it. And speaking of this theme, he uses words such as beauty, grace, power, and glory to describe this elusive end goal. On the second page of the book, McLean writes the following. As a Scot and a Presbyterian, my father believed that man by nature was a mess and had fallen from an original state of grace. One of the big themes is grace and disgrace in the book. As for my father, I never knew whether he believed God was a mathematician, but he certainly believed God could count. In fly fishing, there's a four count, and so every cast is one, two, three, four. And he paints this picture in the book of how his father taught them how to fish by bringing a metronome out and using this four count over and over and over again. So my father believed God could count, and that only by picking up God's rhythms were we able to regain power and beauty. Unlike many Presbyterians, he often used the word beautiful. We see three of those restoration words, power, grace, and beauty, used in this one quote alone. The Presbyterian father clearly held to a story of creation and clearly held to a reality of the fall. Again, my father believed that man by nature was a mess and had fallen from an original state of grace. His father also believed that restoration was a possible and worthy goal. Again, he says, only by picking up God's rhythms were we able to regain power and beauty. In other words, it's only when we surrender our flawed and rebellious rhythms, those rhythms that we choose apart from God, it's only when we surrender those rhythms of our lives to God's rhythm that we begin, in McLean's words, to regain power and beauty. Uh, several years ago, a pastor of Lookout Mountain Press, Joe Novenson, came and spoke to the leadership team at Seven Hills Fellowship, and someone asked him, you know, basically some question like, you know, what would it look like if we as a church did our job perfectly, and we trained our pe people perfectly, and we did a perfect end result? He, they, somebody asked him sort of that version of that question, and we expected him to answer something sort of deeply philosophical or maybe something from church research, and uh, Joe Novenson answered this way. He said, I think the answer to that question is the end goal you should be looking for is that is already mentioned in Galatians 5. He says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? Those are, that's God's rhythm for life. Those are the traits that make someone beautiful. Not only does submitting to God's rhythms make us beautiful, but those rhythms are also the way in which we make the world around us beautiful, or we enact restoration. McLean goes on to comment more about this implication of restoration when he writes elsewhere, the following quote, he says, something within fishermen tries to make fishing into a world perfect and apart 
I don't know what it is or where, because sometimes it is in my arms, and sometimes in my throat, and sometimes nowhere in particular except somewhere deep. Throughout the book, McLean argues that this longing towards restoration seems to be built into us. It seems to be ontological. In the book, we see this longing for restoration playing out in the craft and the art of fly fishing. But we also see this longing manifest itself elsewhere. We see it manifest in a perfectly decorated home, right? Some of you know that that's where you go to daydream. You know, maybe you go to Instagram to look at these pictures of perfectly decorated homes. It's what you long for. It's especially compelling when it's a renovation. It's why people watch Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines. There's something uniquely satisfying of that act of restoration, bringing something into existence that is beautiful and whole. We know that neighbor, right? Most of us know that neighbor who spends hours mowing and weed eating and weeding their lawn in order to make just the perfect front yard and backyard almost a sanctuary. We know poets and writers who labor over the perfectly crafted line. The list goes on and on, but one thing is clear. We long for restoration, and when we are part of it, we feel deeply satisfied, right? When we, when we live these lives of restoration, we engage in these acts of restoration, of making something beautiful and whole, we can stand back, look at what we've done, and we feel satisfied. In their book, Intimate Allies, written by Dan Allender, who's a counselor, and Trimper Longman, who's an Old Testament scholar, they argue that our fundamental telos, or the, what we're created for as humans, is to bring order to chaos, to bring order to chaos. That's what you were created to do. That's what they would say. In other words, God created us in his image before the fall ever occurred to partner with him in finishing the creative act that he had begun in the garden. You notice that that's what God did, right? He created the world, and then he created the garden, and then he created Adam and Eve, but the world wasn't complete yet. He put them in the garden, and he said to then take care of it and to populate it and to populate the earth. That's what they were created to do, is to bring order to chaos. Even after the fall, even though we're broken, and even though that godlike image in us is shattered, still our fundamental design, what we're created for, it's still there. It can't be erased. We are actually at our most human and our most like our Heavenly Father when we partner with Him and with His risen Son in the act of restoration. The result of this surrender to God's will is, to steal a phrase from McLean, or when we surrender to God's rhythm, the result is beauty. Here's what McLean says, the cast is so soft and slow that it can be followed like an ash settling from a fireplace chimney. One of life's quiet excitements is to stand somewhat apart from yourself and to watch yourself softly becoming the author of something beautiful, even if it is only a floating ash. We find this theme of restoration really all throughout Scripture, but maybe especially we find it in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 21, we read this, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Here in Revelation 21, we see Jesus reigning. His work on earth and person has been done. He lived a perfect life. His work on the cross is done. He's now seated on a throne. And from that throne where he's ruling and reigning, Jesus doesn't say, I will make all things new. He says, 
I am making all things new. So this restorative endeavor isn't only when Jesus comes back, but it's in process right now. And we, the redeemed of the Lord, are invited into this process as an extension of the risen and reigning Christ. As 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 tell us, we are the body of Christ. And when we surrender our hearts and our minds and our bodies to Christ, the result is beauty and is restoration. It's, it's order to chaos. So let me end by saying this. What should I hope or what do I hope you walk away with today? This is all very ethereal. But what can you walk away from this today carrying with you? One, I believe it's very important for us as Christians, maybe vitally important for us as Christians, to engage with art, again, Netflix, music, uh, literature, whatever it is, critically and biblically. In order to do that, however, we first have to be following Jesus in order to know what He has to say about His Word and uh, the world that He has created, right? We've got to follow Him. And if we're not being discipled by Jesus as we engage on this endeavor, it's almost a guarantee that we'll be discipled by the very art that we seek to understand. Does that make sense? There's something very much at stake in our ability to look at art biblically and critically. Two, the next thing I hope you walk away from today realizing is that your life, your life as a college student, as a grandparent, as a parent, as a child, that your life has purpose. It has meaning. Remember the words of John 1, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus' arrival into human history serves as the very light by which we see and understand this world he's created. C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Our lives have purpose and meaning. And finally, I'd love for you to walk away today remembering that even though you are called to a life of restoration, you're definitely called to that, and you are most fully human when you are engaging in that restoration, you yourself are still very much also in the process of being restored. You know fully that you're broken. You know fully that you're rebellious. You know fully that you're wandering away. You know fully that even back to that passage we began with today, that you're drinking from these other fountains. You're seeking to eat and drink from things that God has created rather than finding your fulfillment in the Creator Himself. But despite all of that, for those of you who have entrusted your hearts and your minds to Jesus, He is at work in you, making you into something beautiful. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would entrust our hearts and our minds and our bodies to you. Father, I pray that, um, like uh, good fly fishermen, that we might allow ourselves to live according to the rhythms that you have created in life, Father, that we would walk with you and know you, even as Adam and Eve were created to walk with you and know you. Father, I pray that, um, that we would pray. I pray that we would study your word. I pray that we would fellowship with other believers. Father, I pray that we would do all of our work and all of our endeavors as sacred and holy acts. And Father, I pray that as we entrust each of those things uh, to you and to your son Jesus, that you would begin making us more and more human, more and more whole, that you would begin sanctifying us. And Father, we pray here at Seven Hills Fellowship that you would even use us as individuals and as a church to see uh, your kingdom come, to see the city of Rome begin to flourish. 
Father, we pray all of these things now in the beautiful name of your Son, Jesus Christ.